Yo, once again, back, it's the Diversity Hires. Today, we are going to be discussing what it's like to be the Black representative in a TV room. And we are also going to get into part two of pitching. Last time, we gave you a little bit. This time, we're going to get you a lot more. Boom. That was fantastic. Let's get into it. Cue to music. Welcome to the Diversity Hires, where Sherman Shu shoot the shit about screenwriting. In case you don't know by now, we're two professional screen and television writers. We live and work in Los Angeles, and each week we come here to this podcast to discuss the craft, the culture, and the business of writing for film and TV. I am Shukri Hassan Tillman, aka Shu. And I'm Sherman Payne, aka Sherm, aka probably most likely the greatest screenwriter who ever lived the g swell probably i, I wouldn't even quap don't even put probably on <laughs> i just was, i was just trying something put, new put some confidence on that name you know what i did it so confident the first few times i thought maybe this time i would be a little more humble about being the greatest <laughs> screenwriter of all time so i just you know it's important like you got to give the people a little humility a little confidence a little this, little that. You know, you got to give them the full spectrum. I'll tell you one thing. It's not a good sign when five of seven people in a writer's room leave from one season to the next. Uh, this was the case on uh, a show on CBS called All Rise. And we're talking about this because it was written, uh, an article was written about it just recently here in the New York Times. Um, and the interesting part of it is that this is a show, uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, on CBS, it centers around a black female judge and um, the writer's room that was assembled for season one and seven writers and I think a diverse room uh, intentionally. So it seems so because there are other characters on the show that are also uh, characters of, co- of color and um, five of the seven people left between the first season and the second season mm-hmm. citing issues with uh, the showrunner and how certain subjects were dealt with, uh, not certain subjects, how race and gender specifically were dealt with, um, even in the most mundane uh, settings uh, through the show. So we thought that was a good way to sort of talk about the challenges of what happens um, when you are a person of color in the room and something comes up and you might be racially insensitive, gender insensitive, um, and you have to figure out how to say something and what to say and what to do about it. Have you had that experience, Sherman? Well, what do you mean by you might be racially insensitive or gender insensitive? What do you mean by that? No, no, no. I mean the, I, I didn't mean you. I mean, the subject matter may be racially insensitive, uh, gender insensitive, and you, the person sitting in the room, um, have to have an internal or may have an internal debate or maybe it's not a debate, but you may have internal feelings about like, I need to say something about this. We need to change this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Cause one of the things I, I found interesting about this article is mm-hmm. that of the five people that left, um, three of them were sort of upper level um, 
writers of color who could not see eye to eye enough with the showrunner on these issues that enough so that they just decided to bounce. Yeah. Uh, which is a huge, huge, you know, kind of thing. Um, well, so, okay. yeah, yeah, well, let me, let me jump into it. Yeah. So I, uh, have been in situations where, uh, I've been the only black person in a writing room. I've been in situations where there've been multiple black people in the writer's room. I've seen sort of everything in between. I never hold my tongue when I think there is uh, an issue that relates specifically to black culture that I have some sort of insight on. I, I just really feel very confident that um, it's my job, not only to just write amazing scripts, you know, every day and, and put out great material every day and good pages, but it's also my job to make sure that black people are representative represented in a way that I feel is uh, true to us and true to our culture. So I never hold my tongue. I think, the biggest issue here is is not really the black writer in the room or the black writers who are in this particular room and all rise, but it's the showrunner, right? It's it's incumbent upon the showrunner to be able to hear that feedback and to hear those suggestions and accept that maybe you don't know the specific details of how this might work culturally, listen and figure out a way to integrate it into the work that also doesn't derail the stories that uh, the showrunner is trying to tell. That's, I mean, that's, that's my yeah. standpoint. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that, um, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting. I think you're right. It's, it's the, it, it's, it's always incumbent upon the showrunner, which is sort of like the um, blessing and the curse, you know, it's, if you have a showrunner who does listen, uh, who, who is sensitive uh, to those, um, to the opinions and to the input of people on the staff, then that's no problem. Or at least it's less of a problem. Uh, I, I would think that like even the most, you know, supposedly well-meaning people um, can have many, many blind spots when it comes to race. And you know, it's one thing to know that you have blind spots. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to uh, have no idea and, and um, you know, operate the room in such a way that people may not feel comfortable bringing something. Or if they do bring up something, you, you know, you, you may respond as if it's, you know, they're being oversensitive or something like that. Um, so it's, it sounds like it could be a challenge. You know, again, I don't, I'm not in like, the business and I know you aren't either of sort of like talking about people that we don't know in yeah. the business, especially. So this is not a, you know, any kind of personal attack. I'm only, we're only just taking what's written about um, and the people who chose to talk about it in the article and made public. Um, but it seems that the showrunner who, who has been retained, he's going to continue on. Yeah. If anything, it seems like the opinion of the people uh, was just that his blind spots were so vast <laughs> as it came to race mm -hmm. that it wasn't like he was intentionally hostile as it came to, to race, but he just sort of was one of those people who was kind of colorblind and didn't see the point or didn't see the big deal. And as a result, uh, made some uncomfortable things uh, got into scripts and we're in danger of being on, on screen. Um, yeah. 
I agree with all that. I think part of the issue that happens is we sort of have to adjust our view of minority representation a little bit. I think for so long we've had the fight uh, about just getting black people, other racial minorities on the screen. And we made that our battle, getting more people who look like us on screen. To this showrunner's credit, the article does mention that he specifically made the choice to make this show about a black woman. So yes. props to him for taking that step. I imagine, I've never been a white dude, but I imagine that's not always an easy thing to do. I mean, you know, it probably takes some real forethought to make that choice when you could easily just make it somebody who looks like you, a white dude. So props yes. to him for that. But where we are now as a culture and where we need to go moving forward is it can't just be about the faces on screen. It can't just be a black person on screen in a role that could be for anybody. That's not really telling our stories and that's not really representing our culture. It's more about putting those people on screen and representing who they would be as a real person. And I think that's where a lot of the friction, if you read this article, that's where a lot of the friction comes from. Mm-hmm. that the people in the room felt as though they were writing stories that could not possibly pertain to a black woman. And mm-hmm. they go into more detail about some Latino stories that are told in the show and so on and so forth. But I think it's up to showrunners and it's up to people who are in charge to say, okay, I've done the work of getting somebody to increasing minority representation on screen. Now I got to take the next step and listen to the people who can really help me tell those stories specifically. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I think the other thing I'll say in relation to that is that, you know, it sounds as though he also went through the, not just to make the main character black, because it's based on a book and the main character in the book is not black, or it's based on a real person. I can't remember a book or a real person, but they, they changed that person to be a black woman. And it sounds like he not only did that, but he also went through the trouble or the trouble. It's not really trouble. He, he went through, uh, he, he opted to make sure that his room uh, and uh, people around him, there, uh-huh. there were writers of color, not just writers of color, but high level uh, writers of color around him. And so two points <laughs> I want to make about this. Yeah. That, those are all the quote right things yet yes. there were still problems right so to me this just goes back to another thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that you know the showrunner it's you know representation is just like you're saying not just about being on screen it's mm-hmm. not even just about being in the room although that helps it really is about being in fucking charge and being the showrunner and being the creator that's really what it's about I, I mean, you know, I think all the other gains and like all the other things are helpful and we need those, but it doesn't mean shit until you are making the decisions. Um, well, and yes. I think this is an illustration of that. Um, I mean, but the then, other- well, the question becomes then, because I, I feel that more representation in the showrunner ranks is obviously something we both agree is the most important way to get more diversity onto the screen. Um we both agree that it sort of starts at the top. It starts with those who are in charge, whether it be executives or showrunners or whatever. And that's actually the way you get more diversity on the screen. But in the meantime, what do you say to the white showrunner 
who is also concerned with diversity, I mean, would you rather him not try to tell these stories? Ooh, that's a tough question. Ooh, <laughs> I didn't actually think that was going to be one that stumped you. Uh, that's a tough question. <sighs> because on one end, look, man, I think creators should be able to tell whatever stories they they want in, in big a facts certain, big facts i agree with that in, yeah in a, in a certain way of course and it's especially the way television is organized you know you you should be able to be i'll just use a you know plain example i want to make a show about lawyers okay i'm not a lawyer but i should be able to sort of um you know be able to create a show about lawyers and be able to put you know, some people with some law experience, either in consultant roles or on the staff or whatever. And I should be able to build my room such that I have all the relevant input that I would need in order to sort of uh, run a show about this particular world, whatever that world is. Right. So you should be able to to assemble that team and do that and to be able to listen to them. OK, so I, I do agree with that in general. Mm-hmm. However... I do think it's problematic to see race and culture as plug and play. I yeah. don't think that so if a you know non ethnic whatever, I don't know. I don't know fuck the terms. If a <sighs> if if a Do you mean non- white? Are you trying to figure out a way to say uh, white? I mean all this is an illusion anyway, but <laughs> but but if but if but if um, a, a per uh, if if a white showrunner uh, and, and again and this is I'm being super broad, mm-hmm. um, but if a white showrunner wants to sort of have a diverse cast, I think it would behoove that person to not simply believe that because I make a white character black, that naively believe that nothing goes along with that, that I, that they are just replaceable, that, that, um, that, that doesn't bring a whole nother level of, of, uh, things to know about that character. It's, Um, it's, it's such a ridiculous assumption. And I think it's, it's really, you know, I, I think the word privilege gets thrown around as sort of like an accusatory, you know, pejorative, you have privilege, you have privilege, but it really is a privilege to think that race doesn't matter. You know, and so I see a lot of young writers who say stuff like, well, this could be this character could be any race. And then I'm like, well, you haven't written the character specifically enough. Right. Like, right. A hotel clerk can be any race who has one line. Hi, how may I help you? A doctor can be any race if they're coming in just to give the bad diagnosis. But if you're talking about big characters who actually shape the story. We should always be thinking about their specific background, race, gender, yes. sexual orientation, the economic background that, they, that they're that they currently in and that they've come from, what their household was like. All these things have to be very specific, and it really does affect the way you tell stories. So yes. I, I really hope that nobody is thinking, uh, I'm going to put a black character in here and I can just write it however I, however I want because that will, feel, yeah. that will feel now very, she's yeah, that'll feel very false. To people who know that culture um that's exactly right and can uh-huh. i just say yeah, I, I think it comes down to you have it does it actually doesn't matter who you are white black man woman asian indian latino whatever 
you, whatever you're creating, you have to respect that world. And yeah. you have to respect the characters and the people in that world, whatever that world is, right? And part of the respect of of respecting that world and those stories and those characters is having some knowledge of it, or at least you don't have to know everything, but if you, or at least being able to put people around you that do have the knowledge of that. But respecting it also means knowing that it is specific. Yes. The lack of a lack of respect would be to believe that it is empty and replaceable like anything else can be there. It is yeah. just, you know, an empty world vessel that cultures can be put in and out of. That's That shows a lack of respect for the world and for the characters and the people that, you, that you're telling stories about. So, Okay, yeah. so a quick question before we move on. How do you deal with this? As a writer, right? You, you've been in a lot of rooms. How do you yes. deal... I'm not saying you've actually dealt with this problem on any of your shows, but put yourself hypothetically in this room. How would you deal with this issue? What would you say? How would you behave? Just give some advice to somebody who might be going through the same thing. I think it's pretty simple. I think you have to say something. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are, it depends on the room, but hopefully you're in a room in which dialogue is free and people feel safe to be able to bring something up yeah if you don't and sometimes that's hard especially if you're just starting out or if you're a, a quote lower level writer i think a good idea is to talk outside the room to to a number two uh -huh. um or to a, a upper level person who may not be the showrunner okay and to, to express your you know Hey, I was uncomfortable about this particular storyline or or that particular you know piece of dialogue or whatever. I think those things can don't have to necessarily be handled in front of everybody in, in the writers' room. Yes. They can be, but I don't think they have to be. Um, I don't think that's necessary. I do think it's important to say something, and I think you know everybody knows how to be professional, respectful, and say something. I think if they don't if those things are not taken seriously or not heard or not addressed, you know, you have to keep speaking up, but then at a certain point, you know, it may be time to bounce because there's just no, um, if conditions don't improve. Okay. So what I'll say is my advice would be the first thing I would try to do is I would try to tell great stories. And what I mean by that is I would try to pitch my cultural concerns as fixes for stories. I would try to figure out how telling a story specifically about this character and this character's culture makes the story better and becomes indispensable to the plot. I think that's the first way that you correct problems because once you make people see that this character can only handle things this way and that's going to actually affect the story and make the story richer and more interesting, people, people are able to accept that much easier. Now, if that doesn't work and you're still getting a lot of pushback, I say sort of go through all the steps that Shakree just described. But I think in the room, it's your job to tell the best story. And being culturally specific is one of the ways you tell the best story. I, I totally agree with that. I, that's great advice. I think have an alternative. That's the easiest way to, to begin. I mean, I've, um, I can say that I've, I've, very, I've pitched stories that uh, on shows that weren't necessarily just about Black people. I've pitched stories for Black characters that I think are super culturally specific that that could not be told uh, for a white character on the same show. 
And those really stuck. I think people, I, I tried, and you know, I was in a friendly room. It wasn't as hostile as what we're hearing about All Rise. But I think those stories really stuck because people appreciated the cultural specificity and how it made the story richer. So that's the first thing I would do. If that's not working and you're getting a lot of pushback and you feel like it's a hostile environment, then you got to do everything that Shakri just said. Sure, yeah, I don't want to dwell on this. I don't want to dwell on this yeah, too yeah. long, uh, unless you have another point. No, I don't want to dwell on it too long either. I, th- I just think my my last point would be that you know it, especially just for people listening, man. Like it it happens. Uh, I think we've all experienced um, uncomfortable moments, um, either with a script, with a character, with a storyline. Yes, it it happens and. I think it's important to try, I think you're right, to to try to the best of your ability to make an alternative suggestion. Yes. Um, and if that doesn't work, to um, talk to somebody if it really makes you uncomfortable, especially a number two or something. And if 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 that doesn't work, you know, there's nothing wrong with emailing the, the showrunner or talking, asking for two minutes, you know, on the side if you can talk to them. I don't think that's aggressive and I just don't think people should be, and I'm not saying you, you're saying that I just don't think people should be afraid to do that. Um, and to speak up in a respectful and, and uh, professional manner. Um, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. As long as, listen, I, I don't want to discourage people from doing that. I'm just saying, having been in the position of being a new writer, being somebody who's low on the totem pole, I do understand why people might hesitate in that situation. Oh Yes. I'm yes. not saying whether it's right or wrong. Obviously, every situation is different. You're an adult. If you're in a writer's room, you have to look at the context and figure it out for yourself. But That's right. I just am sympathetic to why people might not want to escalate complaints um, for a variety of reasons. Um, the last thing I'll say I, is that I, I agree with you that it's always you, you can always bounce. Like people yes. leave shows, <laughs> people leave shows all the time for a number of reasons, and that's one yes. thing we should take away from this article is that. People yes. just left. You can always leave. It, yes. will, it will not kill your career. You'll yes. have another opportunity. People go from show to show to show. I'm I, In my very short time working in television, I've already been on four shows. Shu's been on a number of shows. The people in this yeah. article have been on multiple different shows. You can always just leave. You can always just say the situation is not right for me for whatever uh, I, reason. And creatively and personally, I need another situation. We need to, we should end it there because that, that is the best advice. I 100% agree. Say what you need to say. And then if it doesn't work, take the steps you need to take. And if it doesn't work, don't fret, bounce. So, Shu, last time we discussed a lot about pitching. We talked about what, what a pitch is, how you get a pitch, how you structure your pitch. But we didn't get into the actual art of pitching, the preparation it takes, what happens on the day. So I want to talk to you about what your process is. After you've secured a pitch, you have a date. After you've written your pitch out, you've structured it beautifully, you're going to tell the story. What happens next? What do you do? How do you prepare for the actual pitch? In some ways, there's not much to do. Um, Once you've – the hard work is really in developing um, all the things you mentioned, to sort of uh, writing it and getting it all written out. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the first step is like after all that is that like, you know, obviously I've practiced it quite a bit um, on my own, and okay, um, but get, get yes. granular. 
What does that sure. mean? What do you mean you've practiced it? Do you you've memorized it? You've read it over and over again? You've looked in the mirror and or you said it to your wife? Like what do you actually mean by practice it? So for me, you know, I write I write out the entire pitch. I mm-hmm. write just about every word. Um and the what I want to what I want the the executives in the room to feel like I I don't I want them to feel like I'm telling them a story. I don't want them to feel like I'm reading something to them. So a lot of what my practice is, is trying to read it over and over and over again, out loud, you mm-hmm. know, usually in, in, you know, my office, you know, to the computer or whatever, um, trying to read it out loud and adjust my inflection enough so that it doesn't feel like I'm reading it, even though I am. Yeah. Um, and so if I do it enough, I'm not memorizing it cause I just can't memorize quite that much, Yeah. but I am doing it in such a way that I, that I don't have to like uh, look off the page and I can throw in some, some asides or throw in some sort of uh, improvised lines in certain places because I've, I've practiced so much that I know what's coming. So I'm very comfortable. Um, also the, the practice gives me, cause occasionally what happens is when you're pitching, Mm-hmm. You, you'll get interrupted either, you know, there's a fire truck outside or right. some people don't like to listen to pitches. They want to ask questions sort of like along the way. Right. So, you know, um, you, you could get thrown off by stuff. And also you can get thrown off by the reactions or the perceived reactions of the people you're pitching to. Yes. So to try to avoid paying attention to any of that, I have practiced and read this so much that I'm half asleep while I'm doing it in some sense, you know, yeah. I'm just sort of like, I've done this enough. You know, I, 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 my mind in some ways is in another, another place. Yeah. I'm sort of like you. I write every single word. It's basically a script. It's, it's several pages. It's every single word I'm going to say. The place that we differ is I actually do try to memorize it. I actually try to know every word exactly how I've written it. And then it just becomes second nature to me. It's just, I can just spew it out. It actually makes those moments of interruptions and uh, adjusting for reactions in the room and questions. It actually makes it easier for me because I always know where I can go back. I always, I, I always exactly know where I can dip back into the story. Right. I personally, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about what, what it's like in the room and what it's like when you show up for a pitch and so on and so forth. But I live for those interruptions. I love mm. those. I love those interruptions because it's, I know that they're engaged. I know that when they ask me that first question or they laugh or they ask, you know, they want to, sometimes they pitch their own ideas about how the story can be improved in the moment. I know mm-hmm. that I've got them. They're invested and then it becomes a conversation. It becomes, I can either just have a general conversation with them and talk to them like I'm talking right now, just off the top of the head, comfortable, or mm-hmm. I can dip back into my story that I've memorized. Mm-hmm. We should give a little note that that's not the only way to do it, man. Like you and I both write out every word. You sort of memorize it. I definitely memorize it. But there are a lot of people who just do bullet points and sort of are extemporaneous and yeah good for them i can't do that personally but i do know people who do that very well 
and they and they feel like if they had to memorize a script or write every word, it would hinder their ability to to sell the story. So I guess that I'm only bringing that up to say there's not one way to do it. You know, there's a million different ways you can do it. You have to find the technique and the um, procedure that works best for you in the way that you speak and the way you tell stories and your personality. I mean, yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but I want to, I want to, I want to push back, you know, partly just to play devil's advocate, but because I, I don't think anything beats preparation. And whatever your preparation is, I think it can be different. But I think there are best practices. I agree with you. I don't think like, um, you know, everybody has to write out everything. But I think the point of writing it out is to make sure you know it and you have it. And you you have it inside and out. And if that means you can do that off the dome, right? good for you. Probably not, but good for you if you can do that. Okay. So let's, let's move on in the process. So you've prepared. Sure. You've done some form of memorization or practicing to the point where you feel like it's second nature. Now it's pitch day, man. It's actual pitch day. You're going to go talk to one or more production companies or studios or networks or movie producers, whoever you're pitching to. What's your day like? Is it a whole day process for you? Is it just about getting out the door? What what actually happens on a pitch day? Uh, you know, for me, I, I, I try to limit... Um, pitches to at most three in a day and usually in los angeles you know that means you're driving between you know half an hour to an hour and a half between each each of those things um so really three is kind of like all you can do in a day um that's a whole day process it's a whole day process just doing three um i think that's the maximum you can do you know some people i used to believe that there was a better time to pitch than than other times and i'm sure that's probably true i'm sure there's some statistics on that if somebody i mean i think just generally just generally you don't want to have a meeting of any kind at, at 4 30 on a friday yes you know what i, I mean like you, people are out especially in los angeles where people use any excuse to be out of the office and to be thinking about something other than work yeah you know the afternoon on friday is deadly because they could just be mentally beyond work. They could also be in a great mood because they're walking out of the door. But I also think it's more likely that they are just totally checked out. They don't want to hear it. Um, So I I do actually believe that late in the afternoon, generally speaking, but especially as you head towards the weekend, is a bad time to meet with anybody. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I could see that. I could see that. I certainly that afternoon on Friday would absolutely try to avoid. I mean, my honestly, like my mindset at the point in which we're doing, we're like scheduling pitches and doing them. My mindset is the same thing I feel about being on the phone. I just want to get off the fucking phone. And so when I, when I get to the off my whole thing, I mean, I'm usually nervous I've usually got to run to the bathroom at least twice before. I'm usually popping Pepto. That's what happens to me. My stomach is crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous as fuck. Mm-hmm. And I, I generally challenge that. I, I generally channel that nervousness into, which is why I have to have everything written. I channel that nervousness into some energy yeah. generally. And then I can kind of just 
say the thing and I just want to get the fuck out of that room. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. I I don't I don't think it ever comes off like that. I don't think anybody across the table would ever sense that necessarily. But I think my my goal is to like there's nothing I can do here except for to deliver this as best as I can mm-hmm. and with some energy and with some, you know, f- um, you know, I, I acted in college. I was in, I was in three different plays and had a little bit of experience being an actor. Uh-huh. And I did some improv theater actually when I was here in Los Angeles and that has come I didn't really know that. In- yeah, that has come in handy. I think those skills of just sort of, you know, when the lights turn on, you turn on. Yeah. And then when the lights are off, you, you know, you're off. And I don't know, that that experience has been helpful too, but yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm big on, I have to have that energy, man. I have to feel it. I have to be very excited. I have to be animated in the room. I don't think I'm... Mm-hmm a naturally good pitcher. I don't think I'm bad, but I don't think I'm naturally good at it. So caffeine is a big thing for me. I have to Mm. make sure that I'm caffeinated, that I feel up, awake, alert. I find that the words come quicker to me. I'm able to sort of pivot on my feet and I can feel the difference, man. I can feel the difference when the energy is low and I'm sort of stumbling and I'm reaching. And when the energy is high and I'm engaging and drawing people in, and able to respond to every twist and turn on my feet very quickly. Mm. Let me ask you this. What is the thing in the room that makes you feel like the pitch is not going great? Are there any indications, any ideas of like, this is not going so well? Do you have any solutions for those moments? I have no solutions for those moments. This is a very interesting question because I I, I think most of the time um, it is somewhat predetermined. I think that um, that's so true, man. I mean, I, I don't want to <laughs> let me not interrupt, but it's like we I think we put a lot of pressure on our shoulders and think we're going to win. We're going to win the pitch in the room. And that does happen. I can tell sure. you, I can think of experiences where I feel like I've won people over in the room. For the most part, they've either seen a script or they've seen a log line. Mm-hmm. They know the people involved. They've done mm-hmm. their due diligence researching you. And they have a pretty good idea if this is something that they want to do before you even set foot in the room. Correct. And so uh, that's such a great point, Shu, because I think it, I hope that that sort of takes pressure off people in a way, because it's very unlikely that um, you're pitching a musical set in space and they haven't already made a decision on whether they want to do a musical set in space or not. Like Correct. they've already made a decision based on the genre, the log line, who you are as a writer and the other people involved. So continue. Correct. I, I just want to I, I, agree with that no. point. Cosign. Totally, totally, totally fine. Uh, two points I want to make. I th- I think most, it's good to realize that the the people that you're pitching to, their job is basically to say no. They want to find something that they can say yes to. Um because they want to find something they can be excited about and all that. Yeah. But of all the projects that come in the door, most of the, most of them are going to get no's. Most of your things are going to get, and things you pitch are going to get no's. So it's good to realize that. And the reason that the, the no is the sort of default is not because your pitch is bad uh, or because they don't like it. It's because 
they have made up their mind, generally speaking, yeah, um, because of their mandates, because of what they have to, what their job, how many projects they currently have in development, which things sound like uh, yours, uh, what projects they're kind of looking for. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they have a lot of times have accepted a um, said yes to hear your pitch is because maybe on the off chance <laughs> that you on the off 1% chance that maybe is there's something in your pitch that they actually do want, or that actually does fit their mandate, or maybe you blow them away so much that they just can't say no. Yeah. But usually that's not the case. Usually they're just there to say no. And the things that they want to say yes to usually fit into what they have predetermined that they want to do anyway, that the types of show that they want on air or movie or whatever. The second point I want to make is that in relation to that is that I have learned over the years that reading people's faces or even their reactions Mm -hmm. is, is meaningless. Mm -hmm. And because I have pitched to people who loved everything, asked questions, smiled, laughed, you know, hugged me on the way out the door and passed, you know, an hour later. Yes. And and then I've pitched to people who have been so stoic, they seem fucking bored. Um <laughs> there's one image that's popping in my mind, but I can't say anything. I don't want to I really enjoyed working with um <laughs> with that executive, but um, you know, that person seemed just even appalled by the story. <laughs> just, just they sort were, of like they were disgusted by your just pitch. Disgusted by this pitch. What is we this film done horribly? And they ended up uh, making an offer. So yeah. it's just really. So my thing when you're when I'm in the pitch, when I'm in the middle of it, even when it feels like it's going terribly, I there's a little voice inside of me that's just just keep going, man. Just keep saying, keep being enthusiastic, keep going, because you just don't know. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about COVID pitching, but the last question I have for you is, what do you wear to a pitch? Um, so I I think dressing for a pitch is actually very important. Okay. Um, I think it communicates a little bit of like who you are in the pitch yes. and who you are in the story, like what yes. kind of creator you are. Yes. So like, it's not that I wear the same outfit every time, but if I am a person who's, I, I try to look somewhat, you know, fairly nice. If I'm a person that wears a, you know, a, a hoodie to a, to a pitch, I'm a certain kind of writer. If I'm a person that wears a, you know, blazer to a pitch, I'm a certain kind of writer. If I wear a tie, I'm a certain kind of writer. Yeah, I mean, I hold on. Don't ever, don't ever wear a tie to a pitch. I've worn a tie before. No, sure. Come on. Yeah. You're I'm an artist. No. Nah, I've worn, I've you worn can't a do tie. It. That's, a, that's worn, a fashion faux pas. No, it's not. I've worn, <laughs> I've worn a purple tie with jeans and sneakers. No, I can I cannot and, uh, co-time. Because I <laughs> let me well I'll tell you a little bit my about my philosophy. Go. The people you're pitching to are suits. They go yes. to work in a corporate environment. Even if they're not technically at a corporation and they're at a production company, that is much closer to the office space corporate environment than uh, an artist lifestyle. I think you want to dress in a way and this is why I'm firmly against 
ties. <laughs> is that you want to dress in a way that distinguishes you as the artist versus them as the suit. So I actually don't always, I, I try not to dress nice. I try not to dress the same way that I would to like a nice dinner with my wife. I try to dress <laughs> more like what I think their perception of an artist is and should be. I try to, it's not about what I want to wear. It's about the vibe that I'm trying to impart. Because when yes. I walk in the room, they're going to look at me. So I, I want to make sure that uh, even though I'm a big nerd, obviously, if you haven't figured that out by now, I think it's pretty apparent. I'm a big nerd. I try to be cooler than, <laughs> than I actually am. And I try to be cooler than the people I'm going to pitch to. I want to sell them on the idea that I'm a cool artist who's going to be able to bring some real creativity to this thing. I'm going to do something that y'all can never do, which is be cool as hell. I used to sort of. That's very, that's so great. I love that. Okay, good. So do now, do you agree with me? You shouldn't have worn a tie? No, because you can make a tie look cool, man. I, <laughs> uh, you can make a, I don't think you should wear like a suit and tie, but, uh, but I think uh, you can make a tie look cool. I don't think a tie is an absolute no, no. What, color, I, what you, color, what color was your cummerbund? <laughs> no cummerbund. Okay, it was a nice, skinny, shiny tie, no, purple, purple. And I think my Adidas sneakers had a little purple in them. We can, y'all can vote. But let's, the let's point is, let's set up a poll: <laughs> tie or no tie. I think the point of like, you know, trying nerds trying to be cool is just that's so spot on. That's absolutely. Uh, what was happening in that situation and i totally agree with that um yeah okay okay good so last point on pitching how has pitching changed for you now that we are in a pandemic because nobody is going to anybody's office anymore the people who work at companies are not going to offices the people who are pitching are at home uh i remember very clearly my last meeting before the whole world shut down, it was really awkward. We didn't shake hands. We didn't sit close to each other. And sort of the next day, we were all ordered to stay at <laughs> home. And then pitching became this thing that we do over Zoom. So talk about your experience pitching over Zoom in a quarantine. Well, so far, I've had like a mix. I've done a lot of pitching this summer. And I've had a sort of a mixed bag of experiences. It's... um some of the things that we mentioned, like just go out the window and, and some of that is good. Like, honestly, the dressing part is kind of out the window. I mean, yeah. they're really seeing your like head and your neck basically. 100%. Yeah. So that kind of is out. Yes. The amount that you can do in a day is you can do more. I still wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but that's, that's kind of out. Like reading people and reading the room is just totally different when they're in those boxes on a screen so even if you could kind of read i don't know what you're really reading yeah so that's kind of different you know like getting a vibe is different so a lot of it's like totally totally um totally different the thing that i think is advantageous though Mm -hmm. is for the way that 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 i develop pitches is that it is completely suited for looking at your computer. It's just like you practice because you're looking at your computer screen. <laughs> yes. My my like written word is like I have it right next. I basically take away the Zoom box. I put minimize mm. that. 
once my pitch starts and I'm just reading my text and trying to make eye contact with that little green dot at the top of my laptop. Shoot, 100%. Let me say, you're so right about that. I don't even look at anybody. I look at my document and I look at the, uh, you know, the, the camera on my laptop and that's it. I'm not worried about reading faces. Most everybody's going to be on mute. So there's not yep. even any verbal confirmation that you're doing a good job. Um, people are just staring at their screen. So it really frees you up. I mean, it made my, it made my preparation so much cleaner. I just sort of had to know it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I knew it was going to be on screen. And yeah. so it made me actually much more relaxed. I wasn't struggling to reach for words or, you know, scrape the corners of my mind for the things I was trying to remember. It was right there. It was casual. Mm-hmm. I was giving a solo performance to yes. my webcam and that's it. And then it's <laughs> over and I and I bring the Zoom window back up and I everybody unmutes themselves and then they tell you what they think and they ask questions. That's exactly right. And like... You know, one one thing I didn't paint clearly mm-hmm. um, was in the in-person version, you know, I bring my little iPad. And so I'm sitting across from executives and I have my like iPad sort of propped up right there in front of me. And so I'm kind of like, you know, I speak with my hands a lot. So I'm, I'm speaking to people and making eye contact with them and then occasionally glancing down to my iPad to kind of scroll it to make sure, you know, keep my place, know where I'm going. Right. Uh, talking, 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 going back and forth. That's a bit of a dance that has to be coordinated in and of itself, you yeah. know, even to know when to sort of like, okay, I got to swipe to the next page or whatever, you know? Yeah. Zoom um, definitely, Zoom definitely it, frees you up. It eliminates that. It yeah. eliminates completely gone. So you just are just they can't going. Even, they can't even see your hands. So like no. you're scrolling through your your PDF or your Word doc or whatever, and they don't even know. Like they, you can't actually no. even see the movement that's taking place under your collarbone. So you're you're really free to sort of do whatever you want in terms of your setup and reading and yeah. And I'll say one other thing. Like mm-hmm. part of what makes you know I, yeah. I consider myself a confident person, confident writer, but I'm right. nervous all the time. I'm just ner- I'm nervous when I get into rooms for the mm-hmm. first time. I'm nervous when I'm writing in a script, even though I've done it a bunch. I'm a person that that I get nervous, and I, everybody I usually does. get over it. Yeah, no, like, everybody oh, does, I'm, man. I've talked yeah. to I've talked to people who are at the very tip top of our industry and asked them about their pitching experience, and it's the same thing. I think it's yeah. it's partially because. Most of us are uh, a little bit introverted. We mm-hmm. like to live inside our own minds. That's why we mm-hmm. became writers. But it's also just a nerve-wracking experience. You have a lot on the line. You put all this work into your pitch, developing the story. And you could also be at the top, you know, at the very top of the industry, you're talking about possibly millions of dollars on the line. To yes. people like us who are in the middle of the industry, you could potentially be talking about thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line. That's a big deal. That's a lot of money. And it really comes down to this 15 to 30 minutes that you're talking to somebody. So I think it's totally natural and you're right to be nervous. You'd be weird if you, if you didn't get a little nervous. That's true. Thanks for saying that. It's true. It's like, but the zoom, the, the zoom or whatever. Oh, I should make another point about that. But the, 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 
COVID pitching eliminates some of that, at least, because yeah. I'm in my house. I'm in my comfort zone already. And, you know, I don't like to show up early for flights, for example. I'm not a nervous flyer, but I just don't like to, like, sit in the airport for two hours before I get on a flight. It's just something a little nerve-wracking about it for me. I like to just show up at the airport the shit is already boarding and I could just get in and just get on the plane and get the shit over with. I feel the same. I do the same wet thing with COVID pitching in person pitching. and got to show up a half hour early, blah, blah, blah. COVID pitching, man. I click that button. If the pitch is at 12 o'clock, I click that fucking button at 1159 <laughs> and 45 seconds, you know? Yeah. And then, so, cause I just want to go, let's just, let me get into it. So it helps with the it helps with the nervousness too, and the last thing I'll say too is that pitching in COVID is that man I, I can't call out any particular companies, but uh, you know all uh, video conferencing applications are not created equal. Oh my god! Listen, I know exactly <laughs> who you're talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about, and I know exactly what what they use. Please, everybody, <laughs> just stick to Zoom. It's really like Zoom don't is, go, Zoom is fine. Just, don't go to any weird new proprietary beta <laughs> testing. You know, like uh, I feel like if I even mention the companies, it's a problem because it'll yeah, it'll indicate yeah. who we're talking about. Everybody exactly. use Zoom. Uh, please don't try to use anything else. I have to download some extension. <laughs> I don't know where the mute button is. Yeah. Like, let's just accept the same way that yes. we have unfortunately accepted Final Draft as the screenwriting program. <laughs> I hate Final Draft. I will go on record as saying I hate Final Draft. Final Draft, <laughs> get out of my life. The same way we've accepted Final Draft as a screenwriting application and I have to begrudgingly use it anytime I have something going into production, let's just accept Zoom, accept as, Zoom. as the video conferencing uh, platform for two or more people. Let's just yeah, accept I mean, it. Yeah, let's just accept it. They won. Yes. Let's just Zoom let's won. Play. It's Betamax versus VHS. Sorry, Betamax. You're gone, bro. Sorry. True, <laughs> um, the last thing I'll say, uh, I know that we keep saying, the last thing I'll say, real quick, uh, <laughs> and it's never the last thing and it's never real quick, but we are both proponents of having some sort of visuals on the screen wow. When you're, when you're pitching over uh, when you're pitching over video conferencing to do some sort of lookbook, some sort of pitch deck, some sort of imagery that gives people something to look at besides just their uh, your little uh, face in a box on their Zoom screen. Great question. I can't believe I didn't bring this up earlier. And I know we can't spend too much time, but a, a huge part, and this is true in person too, I find that a huge part of pitching is having some, to me, having some visual element. doesn't have to be, you know, super decked out, made by a professional graphic designer. I think 90% of pitches I've done has just been me, or if I'm working with a co-writer, just, mm-hmm. you know, pulling pictures from Google or whatever and doing our own little deck. Yeah. But I think having like, you know, pictures of characters the world the place it's set the look and feel those kinds of things are so important for because i think the executives just need to see especially if it's an odd topic they just need to see some hint of like something to put something in their mind i think that's even more important um in pitching on zoom yeah because yes 
yeah, staring at those boxes, everybody's already tired of it just in general. Yep. And doing it for, you know, 25, 30 minutes um, during a pitch is hard. Now, I'll say, that being said, I literally just sold a project where we had no visuals. And it was the first time that I had taken a project out with no visuals and because yeah. we just moved quickly on it. Same here. And I, it, I recently sold something under the same circumstances, but I still would have preferred to have some sort yes. of lookbook. And, I, yes. and I, I'll say that I yes. actually am not a person who does that when it's in-person pitching. I think when it's in-person oh, pitching, really? I want them to be engaged on me. I want to make eye contact. I, I like that human-to-human interaction. All that's gone. Ah, interesting. All that's gone over Zoom. So I think, uh, but we are in agreement that on Zoom, on video conferencing, you do need something other than just your face. I think so. I think it's helpful. Shoe, it is time to wrap up. Let's that, wrap up. That was a great conversation. I learned a lot about pitching. Uh, I still am not going to wear a tie to any pitches, but again, the people can decide who they want to roll with on that. But we should uh, do our uh, evergreen segment that we end every episode with called Don't Do That Shit, where Shu and I talk to you about some bit of screenwriting craft or some practice within the screenwriting industry that you definitely shouldn't do. And our purpose there is to just give you a little insight into making yourself a better writer and a better screenwriter in this industry. So Shu, I'll throw to you first. What's your Don't Do That Shit for this week? Yeah, that's... (laughs) All right. This is stupid, man. This is this is a this is an industry. Don't do that shit. Okay, let's let's do it. Here we go. Industry, don't do that shit. If you are an inspiring, you know, writer out there and trying to get people to read your stuff, and you know, you send it to people. Um, my don't do that shit this time is actually don't be so nice. What do I mean by that? I think kindness is a forgotten virtue and it's really important, especially in this industry. But niceness and kindness are two different things. And when you give something to a busy person, especially, don't be too nice and not follow up. Ask this motherfucker if they've read your script yet in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever. Give it some time, but don't back off. I once hounded somebody, hounded, I use that word in quotes. I once hounded uh, somebody, a showrunner, I won't name his name. He was very nice to me, though. But I hounded him for a year. Every three, four weeks, have you read my script yet, sir? No, I'm getting around to, okay, no problem. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to your feedback. He finally read it after a year. He said it was not very good. And I should... (laughs) Um, you know, improve my writing. And he was right, but I stayed in touch with that guy. This was before I broke in. Stayed uh-huh. in touch with that guy. He was very nice to me. He even met me for coffee and we talked about screenwriting. So, and, then, and then the silver lining is he hired you eventually, right? No, he didn't. Uh-huh. But um, but, but he's a nice guy. And when I got my first job, I uh, emailed him and thanked him for all the advice and time. And he was very appreciative of that. Yes. Um, but just, just Listen, don't don't be shy. I actually think that's a great don't do that shit. Do not be shy. You have to sort of master the art of being politely annoying. You have to yes. follow up. You have to, especially when you don't have any connections and you're just breaking in, you have to really bother people. 
uh, because you're not going to be their top priority. You are going to be somebody that they forget about. You are going to mm-hmm. constantly be at the bottom of their script pile. And the only way you get ahead is by having people read your work. So yes. totally agree with that, Shu. My don't do that shit for this week has to do with screenplay, film writing structure. Please, please make your third act about something other than action blowing it out of the water, big fight between the protagonist and the antagonist. And this is mainly about movies that fall into the action category or the adventure category or the superhero category. So often the third act just becomes about the fight. It just becomes Mm -hmm. about the battle. And you really need to raise the emotional stakes more than you raise the peril and danger stakes. You can still raise peril mm. and danger, and death can still be in the, uh, a, a possibility of the way your script ends. The fate of the universe can still be hanging in the balance. But I need to know what has emotionally changed for your protagonist and how things have gotten worse from the, for them from an emotional standpoint and how the third act will correct that or how the third act will send them into even further despair. Please make your third acts about something other than the big battle and the big fight with the antagonist. Really double down on your character's emotional arc. Wow, that's interesting. That's great. I know. That's great. I, I, well, I'll ask you after. I, I want some edu- education on that. <laughs> anyway, y'all. Should, should we sign off? Yeah, let's sign off. Thank you for listening to The Diversity Hires. You can find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at DivHiresPod. I'm your host, Sherman Payne. And I'm Shukri Hassan Tillman. This show is produced by the wonderful August K. Burton, AKB. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast anywhere that you find your podcast, your favorite podcast. You can feel free to hit us up on social media with any questions that you might have, anything you want us to talk about. We're open to suggestions. See you next time. Questions, comments, concerns. Don't forget to visit thediversityhires.com. Bye, y'all. Later. Later.